Welcome, everybody, to the Lights Out Podcast. We are back as usual. You can see the usual suspects right here. I don't even need to say their names, but we have a special guest this time. The 50 Fight Club. These are people who have been in mixed martial arts and had more than 50 fights. We have our first person, Brian Eversall. Brian, how you doing, brother? Yeah, good, good. It's just morning over here in Australia. You caught me at a good time. I've got a coffee, and I'm, I'm ready to rock. Right awesome. On. And, uh, yep, yeah, I, I know Brian... Uh, good to good to see you again. Good to talk again. It's been a long time, but uh, I know you've been in Australia for a long time. So before we get into the old school stuff and the history, uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on in Australia. I know you know you're old, you're there at least a decade, over a decade at this point. So uh, give us a little bit of the scoop because that means to me, you know, guys like Whitaker, Adesanya, and you know, you could go back and uh, they got a scene down there. You you probably knew that ahead of us. Yeah, so um, first time I was here was 2006, fighting for XFC uh, under Justin Lawrence. Um, so XFC now is the longest continuous running MMA show in Australia. Um, okay. And I can bring this whole thing full circle. We can end the interview now. Um, <laughs> I started fighting with them, and now I matchmake for that show. Nice. Now, XFC is on to its next owner. Justin Lawrence has sold the show and retired. Um, but he's still, you know, in my ear and we chat and he's, he knows what's going on. And um, the biggest compliment that I can get is, you know, he knows it's in good hands now. Uh, he always said, you know, making fair fights and, and taking care of the athletes was, was his number one job. Uh, and then obviously selling tickets comes a very, very close second. Because if you don't sell tickets, you can't run the next show. Um, so, yeah, huge compliment there. Um, I haven't had any mismatches in the five shows that I've I've put together so far. So, uh, knock on wood that that streak continues and I get to help, you know, kind of create a platform for the amateurs and, and some of the pros that are going to go places. But yeah, in the last 12 years, it's been really no surprise to me um, watching some of the talent come up, gathering the, the, the skill sets from around the world. And I'd like to think I helped with the wrestling side of things in the time I've been here, even just open some eyes and have the fights that I did and show the importance of being able to control a fight um, from standing to the ground. But, man, some of these guys have, have really, you know, risen uh, above and beyond what you would think based on, you know, what their coaches did and stuff like that. I mean, you've got a lot of guys right now, Alex Volkanovsky, training, you know, with a guy that hadn't had a ton of fights or anything. It just He's just ran, done his thing, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a really cool country with a lot of really good athletes. Um, and, yeah, the, the coaching has really absorbed a lot of the knowledge around the world. And, and done the right thing by their athletes. So, yeah, now it's um, now it's on the map. It might get a bit harder, guys, to start shooting for us and expecting something from, from these <laughs> Australians now. Well, you, you, you said you bought the wrestling. Did you, When you got down there, did you find, like, they were more advanced in, like, boxing? Because I always think of them as, like, you know, the British, like, you know, tree. And then it was, like, outlaw country for the Brits. So, like, a lot of, like, rugged British guys wound up over there. And it's, like, it's known as a, you know – a hard yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so I, I, you know, that tradition of like settling things and stuff like that. And then you go back to like, you know, 1908 and you had Jack Johnson fighting for the world, world title in Australia. That wasn't in the United States that the first black man won a heavyweight boxing title. It was in Australia. So it seems like they've always supported the stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, they've got a lot going on here. Like, they have a really good boxing scene. Um, there's definitely the rough and tumble, rugged, like, Aussie bloke thing going on. I mean, they play rugby, and they mm -hmm. love it. They play both codes as well, um, where I've only really seen rugby union in the U.S., but they play a version over here that's a bit faster called League. Um, and then they have a huge Muay Thai culture. So there are a lot, a lot, a lot of those little pyramid triangles sitting on the back of people's shoulders and necks, you know, and on their chests, um, indicating that they've went to, to Thailand and, and been, you know, tattooed by a, a monk or a priest. Um, but yeah, there's some really, really talented guys like John Wayne Parr is the biggest, easiest name to recognize. Um, but you've had like Nathan Corbett, uh, and plenty of other guys that run that contender series with um, with John Wayne Parr that have done really well. So um, it's a very, very striking oriented country. There weren't that many black belts uh, when I first arrived. After my first couple years here, there was a bit of an influx in Brazilian black belts traveling over, getting their uh, permanent residency or working uh, class visas and kind of settling here. So there's kind of a beach vibe that they really enjoy and a very, very um, captive market for them because it was a lot of blue and purple belts teaching, you know, and those guys were struggling to get their purple belts by flying over, you know, really talented BJJ guys to do an annual seminar and maybe stay for an extra couple of days to train that head instructor and help him with his next bit of progress. But you're paying for that guy five, six grand to come over every year. That's a tough way to get a purple belt. You know? So, um, and then now with the wrestling, being able to come over here, they have a wrestling scene, but it's not very big. And it's the Olympic styles, which they don't, um, they don't favor control quite as much as folk style American schoolboy wrestling does. You know, you can double leg someone in the, the Olympic styles and the guy falling to his back can wrap the waist and do a back roll and flip the guy over. And the guy that got double legged gets two points. Well, both guys stand up and no one's in control, but it's two zero somehow. And same with some of the big five-point moves. Like, I can turn my back and, like, judo throw you and send you across the mat. You do a front roll and stand up. No one's on top, but I'm up, like, 5-0. <laughs> wow. It's cool for sport, but it's not quite combative. So to be able to bring over the, the folk style um, wrestling here and get guys had to game plan for me, guys had to study um, that whole skill set. And it was obviously on the UFC, like – from the early days of the Mark Coleman's and all that holding people down and pounding them. So it was a, a valued skill set, but sometimes people didn't know how to go about it until it's right in front of their face. And then they can start to absorb and, and steal and train for and from that style. Yeah. Let, yeah. let me ask you, uh, I, go ahead, Chris. I'd say the folk style definitely translate way better for MMA and like jujitsu. It just seems like it's really the same thing, just different moves, folks. I mean, you get the same mat feel. You don't get that from freestyle or Greco or whatever. It's that's all takedown based, but I mean, you got to know how to control the guy on the mat once you get there. You know, so yeah, you, you, you get paralyzed too much in freestyle and or so yeah, freestyle and Greco for trying to um, yeah. to avoid the takedown because there's a huge difference in back points and folk style. You have to hold me on my back for two or three seconds, but I also have an indication from the referee that he's saying I'm on my back at the moment. Where in, in the freestyle, just a, a quick roll, through. like you can front headlock someone in gator roll and get two points. You, you can keep doing it and win 10 enough and game's over sometimes. That's it. That's it. So yeah. Without control. So it's, it's really hard for guys in, in the freestyle and Greco to go ahead and scramble and fight almost like a jujitsu style, you know what I mean? Scramble where they're half on their back, half on their side, still not quite under control, but you don't want to, you'd give up the one point instead of four or five. 
So you, most people just belly down. Where folk style, you know, you can play that game a lot more. Guys like Ben Askren with their funky style wrestling and their scrambles and passing the leg over their head and getting awkward. Um, so, yeah, you're right. It is folk style and jujitsu mesh up a lot more than the Olympic styles, which are just really explosive. All right, coach. Yeah, easy, coach. There we go. <laughs> but, wow. I got, but that that's good stuff. But let me ask you now. So we're, we're a little bit about the Australian scene. I'm a, a little bit of a historian nowadays, I guess. And uh, the very first Australian dude I remember kind of affecting MMA. Trevor I know Frank. what's coming. Who? I know what's coming. Trevor Frank. No. No, he's South African. No, 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 no. no. All right, you, you guys are youngsters. Who who have we well, got? Uh, it's a black belt of under Gene LaBelle named John Donahue, who was the referee uh, for yes. uh, um, John Peretti's show. He was very close to John Peretti, and he was later a judge with Abu Dhabi and stuff. Um, he was he was a quality referee. Like I I don't you know I know he was a black belt, and I know you know being around him and stuff. But I I, I never saw him compete or anything. He was known as a referee, but he was the first guy that really impacted. And then when he was one of the uh, judges at Abu Dhabi, I thought that you know he kind of disappeared after that. Um, I could tell you there was a a guy we tried to bring over from Australia who was a wrestler based guy that just seemed like you know, checked off all the boxes, a guy named Chris Brown. And I bought a plane ticket for him to come to the United States. And Chris had beat up somebody when he was young and he couldn't get in the country. And we, we, (laughs) I lost, I lost the plane ticket, but he's a five time Olympian. They wanted, they wanted to match that guy up against. I mean, I tried to match him against Enzo Gracie. So I know Australia had, uh, um, MMA, you know what I mean? They were always people interested, but Donahue was the first guy I had contact with. I have a lot of respect for him. I consider him an old friend. Yeah, so John's uh, over in Melbourne, and so is Chris. Both have their own gyms. Um, I've matched some of Chris's guys and had the pleasure of meeting him and having him corner guys. Um, But you're right. He did have some legal trouble that caused him issues getting out of the country. Um, He's a five-time Olympian, um, you know, highly touted, well-renowned. And he did it in a time when it was just toughness. You know what yeah. I mean? It would have been toughness and and he was more a hard dude, man. He I was one over that dude. many years. I don't care what country you come from. That's hard work. I, I always it, remember that accent just makes being, it tough. I just remember the Australian guys being known as really tough guys and tough fighters. I remember Jason Guys he told me the time when uh, he had the guys over in Pancrase and they brought their Australian you know team. There's like three or four of them. And, one of them got picked up and like suplexed and dislocated his shoulder. There was Chris Hazeman too, from back and then. Chris Hazeman, yeah. And, and uh, the guy's like, "Come on, we're going out." He's like, "I separated my shoulder." I was like, "You pussy, come on!" And <laughs> Shamed him into going out and drinking a Rapogi that night. So I thought it was funny. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so we have a story of um, Jamie Tahuna fought Hector Lombard. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And Jamie's shoulder came undone, and they the ref allowed him to go back and have his corner snap his shoulder back in place, and he went out and finished the fight. Jesus. <laughs> All right. So, you know, uh, Brian, what we're doing is like a 50 fight club, and what we like to do is we try to take like a deep dive into people's careers because there's a lot. Yeah. You know, so no matter where. You've got to have me on twice because I've had a lot of fights. <laughs> you have to you have. But just to, just to be I'm clear, right, just to, before I give it, uh, the floor over Miguel, to Mike. Miguel, you got to give me a minute. <laughs> I'm just going to say, Ebersole, 51 wins, 18 losses, one draw, one no contest per sure dog. So he's coming up on 70 fights. Go, Mike. Okay, so we got 
well, this is almost 70 Fight Club at this point. Yeah, so <laughs> your first recorded fight is Chris Albania. And yeah. it was a total fight challenge here at the Hammond Civic Center, I believe. And really? I think that's where I may have first met you. It was like right around the year 2000. Was that your actual first fight, or was that just your first one on record? That was my – might even have been my second loss. <laughs> so it wasn't my first fight. So I started out 4-0, uh, fighting mostly at Finkies, um, as, as we wide, had a right? brief moment before and had a bit of a chat about. Um, so uh, I fought like an outdoor event for that same promoter, Braulio Corral, as well. And yeah. won a fight uh, with a guy that had to, like, wear his jock strap on the outside of shorts that I loaned him because he didn't have shorts. Okay. And uh, <laughs> I lost to uh, Jay Mask my first fight by armbar. And then I lost a decision to Chris Albania, who was the first wrestler I fought. So I knew it was going to be a different fight than the five I had before. And um, he went on to do some, some really good things. And I think he's still a wrestling coach up in, like, the yeah. Evergreen Park, Illinois area. Yeah, 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 he was. Um, those Finkies fights, you brought it up there. Like, it's kind of like one of my favorite, like, venues here. Are, are you, it was cool. Are, are you aware of what happened to that bar in Indiana? No. I'd so, be interested. No, it was a cool place. I remember, like, the ring was on a dance floor, and you could go upstairs on a mezzanine and look down on the ring. So this so, is the like, same place that Miguel Torres – yeah, Miguel Torres cut his teeth at Finkies as well. We so it's kind of funny together. Yep. The Wisniewski's as well. Like there was a lot, lot, lot of bad boys stepped in. Joe and place. John, Joe and John Pawn, two stud wrestlers from Illinois. Can I ask you a question? Yep. Was that a location where, when you were fighting, there was actually a guy doing play-by-play -play over a over the mic? The promoter. Okay, so promoter. I've seen I've <laughs> seen video. I know it, I've seen videos of of the Wisniewski's and stuff on that, and they actually yeah. it was. Like, kind of ridiculous because play-by-play -play live, you know, um, you know, not too many people try that. But I always remember, man, the fights are good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, we had some talent, talented kids. It was just an outlet for all of us wrestlers that had nowhere to go. Yeah. I can't speak from the other side, like how the, the Kempo karate guys or Shudokan or, you know, whatever other styles got there. But I know for a lot of us wrestlers, it was just kind of a thing to do. At the time, like we were so, done wrestling, nowhere else to wrestle. That sounds fun. Essentially, yep. it was the owner and his son. The son ran it, and the son would, from what I understand, had some um, had some issues. <laughs> and those issues, you know, there we go. <laughs> those those issues, issues that required that, tissues. Yeah, that that, that, that issue uh, had that bar that 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 bar burned completely to the ground uh, under some like mysterious circumstances. I think <laughs> maybe lightning hit it, funny. spontaneous combustion. <laughs> hey, they I, I had their insurance papers though, didn't they? So yeah, it's, it's no good. <laughs> that place is no good. Wow. All right, so some of the guys that you fought that are in the 50 Fight Club, one of them is Adrian Serrano. Yep. Could you expand that? Awesome He's an awesome dude. Like I would see him at other shows. Um, and just my eyes would light up. Like, I'd get the tingles. I'd be in awe because I knew he was in the UFC. You know what I mean? Like, it was so cool to have him on shows, knowing he had that many fights, um, and getting around the local scene. So, it's one of the ones, like, by the time I got out of Illinois and I fought other places, like, guys like him being around sort of helped me not feel starstruck, in a sense. You know what I mean? Like, 
it just didn't feel that unattainable. Like when you're already around normal guys that have sort of done the grind and got there mm-hmm. and to know like, okay, well, my path can lead me to that same place, you know? So it was really neat. And then obviously I wrestled with Matt Hughes, but like I was starstruck by Matt because he was on such another level. Like he was such an incredible athlete. Um, I mean, I would have needed a frying pan and a head start to beat him. That would have been my <laughs> one path to victory would be hitting him from behind with a frying pan, you know? So, um, I did feel there was a separation there, but then, you know, by the time I got to leave and I was like, well, Tito Ortiz is a junior college wrestler. He was like the next big name that I met. Um, and I was like, well, gosh, he's the champ, but like I wrestled at a pretty good level too. Like I can get there. So yeah, like guys like Adrian Serrano and Jeremy Horn being around. And again, he was, he was carrying fights in the second round just to be nice to promoters at the time. Like he wasn't <laughs> even trying to win fights fast. I was like, what control? Like what a, I mean, that's, that's studly to go out there and bypass a submission or let a guy sweep you from mount and just hold him in guard and go, yeah, okay, I'll just do this next round. No big deal. You're welcome promoter. You got your main events times, times, you know, in the ring as opposed to a 30 second submission. Um, but being able to be around those guys, like physically be around them and, and not just see them on TV and then feel like they're Michael Jordan when you meet them um, was a big help. Yeah. Did you come down uh, to Evansville with Fitch? Um, I, I fought in like a Harris casino or something. Okay. A couple times I fought in Kokomo, Indiana, me and John traveled a bit Evansville, probably. Um, I brought John up to Brad Kohler, I think two or three times. Um, I brought Mike and clay French up that way as well. Uh, I know Mike fought. I'm not sure if clay fought on those. Um, but I know Mike, his older brother did. Um, clay was a, a kid that wrestled at my college and that fought in Japan and like fought Sine, Kedaioka, and a couple other really high-level guys. Um, like I said, Eastern Illinois, you know, coming out of that college, just a rough-and-tumble room, as we were talking about earlier, produced a lot of, like, high-level guys. UFC, right. Bellator. We have a PFL champion that's come out of there. All sorts. Right. So let, let's talk about Eastern Illinois, because when you were there, they actually discontinued the wrestling program. Just after I left. Just okay, just after you left. Yeah. But whoever was recruiting for that program – it was like a who's who in MMA. <laughs> but we were like, we were just like the leftover rough and tumble kids out of Illinois high school wrestling. Like we were the guys that couldn't go to Illinois. And so, okay, you know, so we, to, we were the guys that who, couldn't go to Iowa, Iowa State. Let, let's go through the names. Matt Hughes. Yep. What, Mike Russo? Yep. Okay, who obviously multiple time UFC veteran. Then you had both French brothers, am I correct? Yep. Who, who else was it? Yourself. That's five. Kenny Robertson. Kenny Robertson. Oh, I forgot about it. He was in the UFC a couple times. Kenny oh, Robertson is a Matt, stud. Matt Veach. Matt Veach, too? I thought he was from Indiana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, he might have been from Indiana, but he came through us. Holy uh, Lewis cow. Taylor. Lewis Taylor, Taylor was, was there. He was my roommate. <laughs> we used to play table tennis to warm up for like <laughs> half an hour a day. In our sweats, and then and then have our sweat, and then go down to the wrestling room because <laughs> fuck hitting a double leg cold, you know what I mean? Like yeah. we were warm, we were ready to go after some table tennis. Yeah. Right. So there would have been there would have been four or five more. I had a random kid named Kevin Nabjan. Miguel might remember this kid. Yeah, I know who he is. He yeah. was just some random kid. I loved him to death, and I'm I'm sad that I lost contact with him because I really enjoyed the kid. He's uh, on the department now. He's on a police department. I believe it. 
Yeah, he was a great kid. And his freshman year, he found me somehow. I was just training martial arts and trying to fight and do my thing because I was uh, kicked off the wrestling team my third year. So I had to have something to do for uh, for my sanity and, and keep my athleticism you know, going and self-worth, all that stuff, right? So he ended up training with me just in random dojos and sometimes in the wrestling room until the coach kind of told me I couldn't go in there anymore, even on the, the off hours. So, um, yeah, he ended up fighting in Bellator and a couple other pretty big shows. Yeah, WEC. So there were, I had a roommate that fought Tim Sylvie and the late Justin Eilers both and had them both and, you know, had, had Sylvie in trouble. He couldn't touch Eilers. Eilers about killed him. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, we had just some random dudes. Jim Theobald. Chris, you'll know that yeah. name. I remember him. Keith. He wrestled at, yeah, he he was at my college just walking around like a badass mystery dude. Like, didn't he, wrestle, he a, didn't do this, didn't do that, but he was just a badass dude. I used he him. So I used him to uh, to break in uh, Rogerio Nogueira. He was Nogueira's first fight yep. in the states. That's right. Really? So he reminds yeah. me of a, he could have been a Jeremy Horn. Yeah, he was that yeah. kind of athlete, and that kind of guy. He was. But he I was a guy. Athletic. Yeah, it, the, but I never the, got to train with him. Yeah, the problem with him was, I was still wrestling in, in MMA was money because he he was the kind of guy that was a draw in Chicago, so he got paid yep. more than I was going to pay him. You know, to come to Indiana. I had a sponsor yeah. to make a big fight, so I got him once. And, uh, you know, he was very, very easy to work with. Oh, he's a sweetheart. He gave everything in the fight. Yeah. And, you know, he did. He was no sweat, no, no, no problem. But he was, like, old school, like, local fighter guy, you know? Yeah, he's, uh, yeah. he had to leave the fight game because he got on a fire department. Like, I, yeah, like, they wouldn't let him fight, I thought. All this nitty-gritty stuff. Like, like Brian, we get, like, real nerdy on this, <laughs> this podcast, and it's, like, it's really not for beginners, but, like, we don't care. You know, it is what it is. All right, so you had mentioned my favorite promoter of all time, Brad Cohen. <laughs> I, I knew it was Kevin Brad Cohen. So, could you, there had to have been some all-star well, moments. Your sarcasm is strong, Mike. I mean, no, that's my favorite. I've, I've been living in Australia this long, and I've always said, like, sarcasm's an American sport. <laughs> I can tell you this. But, yeah, what happens, what's going to happen here is, Brian doesn't like Kohler, and Mike d likes Kohler for the same reason. So I'll let you guys tell <laughs> me. Did I, did I give my position away already? <laughs> tell us your was story, your, Brian. Your hands. <laughs> yeah, let's hear a story about Kohler. Let's hear Your experience. So the first time I fought for Brad was, was all okay, right? We show up. We drive the nine hours up you know, to the middle of nowhere, Minnesota, <laughs> from, from Eastern Illinois University. And um, – He's actually, like, at, at, after the weigh-in, we found him at, like, a local diner. Could have been at Denny's, <laughs> right? So just something basic. And he bought our meal, you know, 25 bucks. He covered me in my corner, man, which was cool. Um, fought for him X amount of times. Didn't make much money. But, again, we didn't sell tickets up there. So it's okay. That said, my opponent always changed. So I always <laughs> fought someone different when I got there. <laughs> Right. First, it was you're fighting this guy from Nebraska. And I'm like, well, that's okay, whatever. And then I get there and I'm fighting a local. You know what I mean? Of course I am. Yeah. Who else is going to sell tickets? Why would, why would I be fighting a guy from Nebraska then? Why would you even put the fight on and give us 500 bucks that doesn't need to be done when we net zero sales between us? Yeah. So I started catching on. No big deal. Just showed up ready all the time. Um, I took one loss on a show. I, I fought Kerry Shaw. And I went for, like, oh, a knee shit. bar. Like, I rolled upside down for a knee bar from guard just because I learned it, like, two weeks before. Um, and tried it, and then he got onto my leg. And I'm like, yeah, I've already had surgery on that leg. I tapped. Um, 
I wish I'd have fought different, obviously. I think, you know, had I taken him down, it would have been a different story. But fun, was it fun, right? Was it? Yeah, Kevin was a heavyweight. Yeah, was it 190 pounds? He's made me fight heavyweight. Like I said, I well, fought he was about whoever he put in front he? of me. Yeah, no, that, that's, they, they were way big. He was way big. He was by 250. He was, a, he was 300 and some pounds. He was a yeah, monster. Yeah, right? he was huge. Meat truck was his nickname. Yep. But you, whatever. That was, the, <laughs> that was the time we were in. 50 yeah. Mike Club. It is what yeah, it is. When, when you were above 185 pounds, you kind of you, you knew what you were in yeah. for back then. Like, you could fight yeah. anyone. And I was six foot. So it wasn't like I could, you know, be 5'4 and like, no, come on, man. You know, like. So yeah. it was a bit of a bit of a go, but the one that got me is I brought up a guy uh, that had fought Tim Sylvia, um, and we were both chatting about pay this and that, and he's he's like, well, this one's going to be on the pay per view. We're going to put this one on the internet on pay per view. He goes, I'll give you guys blah 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 percentage of the pay per view. Hey, and of course, hey, listen, we don't and we don't want to get no bigger. I go, listen, just take care of us. We don't care. Like that's fine. Right, pay us after the show, whatever. Well, we get up there, and everyone else knew it wasn't going on pay per view. So I was like, Brad, like, he's like, oh no, no, when the pay per view sells, I'll pay. It'll like, be like two months, you know, like let let me have two months to sell the pay per view. I go, well, everyone's saying there is no pay per view. Oh, what do they know? Oh, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, mate, just give us our two hundred fifty bucks, and we'll go home, like usual. Who cares? And he threw a big fit, you know what I mean? So phone calls and all the mess for a couple of weeks and sure enough, there was never a pay-per-view, never a link, never a, a buy-in for my family to pitch in so I can get 1% of it. <laughs> and, uh, so that put me off him. And, um, and he never really even, he never called back. Like he knew he burned the bridge, but amongst all this, I heard the story of him faking his own heart attack to leave one of the shows. <laughs> so he didn't have to pay people. And I heard about six more stories along the same line. And so, I just left it there. At so that my stage. favorite was like two years ago. He did it. He found some money guy. I, I don't know. He's made a product. I ran into him in New Jersey for the autograph guy. And he was at this show, like doing this boxing bag number product oh, thing. Yeah. Like you got to go one, five, three. All right. So he, he got this money guy convinced him to do a pay-per-view and these are, his descriptions, not my own. These Asians and Germans love watching men beat up women. We're going to do an intergender match, and it's going to be in Russia. But the thing is, everybody involved had to check in on Facebook, pretending they were on a flight to Russia, and they would just drive to Michigan and do it in a warehouse. <laughs> and everybody knew that – the athletic commission got involved. They stopped it. Everybody that was like even entertained the idea of going out there and getting involved in this. Like got big, like Shannon Rich, one of your buddies. He oh, was, uh, Shannon, Shannon, Shannon wouldn't go do something like that, would he? <laughs> Maybe he actually went to Russia, but uh, his body oh, was in Michigan. Add, add acting to his resume. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you fought Shannon three times. Twice. You care, twice. twice? Do you care to delve into any of those fights? Either yeah, of those I'd be fights? happy to. It's how, I, it's how I met my wife. No problem. Can we pause, though? I, I need to put my phone on charge. Yes. Yep. It's just this Zoom stuff's it's draining my battery. And all this knowledge, my phone, this is more than Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, shit. Elvis Sinisic, you guys should be embarrassed. Of That's the first guy from Australia who <laughs> did anything for real. Come on, man. He submitted Jeremy Horn, and that was like, that put Australia on the map. You know that, UFC-wise. Well, I, I'm going to look up I'm gonna look up Chris Hazeman because Chris Hazeman, I, I, I don't – like, there was, a, there was a, a, a team of guys before that. Hold on, man. Well, here, but I, as far as, like, real – like, as far as UFC mainstream knowledge, that was the first guy people would have ever heard of. Okay, I'll like, tell you. The, the hey, first... like Hayes, Hayes lost to Horn, but he beat Carlos Barreto. He beat Joe Slick. This is all in rings. He actually came to rings and did Rings USA. Took Hughes to a unanimous decision. Um, he was a rings guy. That's where that's where he came from. Well, the biggest show. badass, the first original badass. He fought Marilo Bustamante. Is Jem Mace, bare knuckle boxer, turn of the century. Arguably boxing's first world champion. He's got a book called, like, uh, The Ringmaster. It's, like, that thick. Really? Literally, a Netflix special should be done about this guy, and it would probably be about five or six seasons. One of the most – if I had to, like, pinpoint, like, a, like a bare knuckle or combat sports guy that may have came from the future and went to the past, I, Jim Mace is absolutely really? at the top of that list. Yes. Like, if you if, – if. Uh, to give props to Australia, since hopefully we'll have a couple of Australians listening to this. You want to delve into boxing history? Uh, there's a legendary guy named Les Darcy uh, that, if I'm not mistaken, was on. He came to the United States and died in the United States um, before he could do anything. But he was supposed to be the real deal, and. A lot of people saw him spark. Wait a minute. Wait, wait. Didn't he get like a tooth infection or something like that? And then he just never made it out of the hospital. That guy, right? Yeah, there's a couple of you – know, there's a lot it's of stories like, about it. You're talking like 1910, 1915, baby? Yeah. Chris Lytle, what you know about that? <laughs> oh, I'm learning, baby. Tooth infection back then, they killed him. They killed him off. I'm not stupid. To death. Hey, just like General Patton, they killed him off, man. They didn't want him going and causing me. Little, little car accident, a little Jeep accident. He died. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the Titanic, it wasn't explosives that was in there. Even though, like, five or six of the wealthiest families in the world that controlled pretty much the entire world were on that boat all at the same time. It was an iceberg. It wasn't explosives. All right, now we're going to walk into a conspiracy theory chat. Of course, well, that's all we right. do. We, have to ironic we went from Shannon Rich to conspiracy. <laughs> well, let's that's talk about mean. the Shannon Rich thing, because, like, how do you get – that's how you say – I heard you say – you get roped You met your wife. Work. Like, how does – so, like, you ate suspensions. You had a – did you – I mean, did you get have to get – tell the whole story. Tell the story. So I'm shutting the door for this. My family's just walked back in. I'm going to be, it's going to get obnoxious and loud. Okay. <laughs> so, so I moved out to California. Um, John Fitch and I took a, I'm going to give you the long version. John Fitch and I took like a Thanksgiving break from our respective colleges after traveling the, the Midwest meat grinding scene a, a few times together. And um, it was Tom Erickson that really helped uh, this all out, Tom and Gary, who, who John knew. So we got introduced to Zincan Entertainment, you know, brought us to AKA. We stayed and slept on Bob Cook's floor for like a good five-day period and then came back to the Midwest, went back to our universities and 
talked and separately decided, hey, that's where we're going when we're done. So he graduated. I was getting sick of school. So uh, I, I took about another six or seven months after into my like fifth year of college. I lost my third year. Uh, we can get into that later if you want. But that was when I got into a fight with a hockey player. So I lost like my whole third year academically and athletically. So my fifth year, I was like, I'm done. Like, I, I'm done. <laughs> and I just moved out to California. So Fitch was already there. Um, and we all got brought down to Mexico. I'd been there numerous times. And so I kind of became like, at a time, I was kind of, besides Bob, I was AKA's like de facto matchmaker, finding fights. Because I'd done such a good job as the reason I'm on this podcast, 50 plus fights. I had 40 of those before I moved to California. So I knew how to find fights and a lot of them ended up being international and out of state. So we got down to Mexico. I'd fought for this promoter um, a couple of times. I'm booked with Shannon and Bob just says, don't get leg locked. You'll be fine. So sure enough, I get in a position, go wrong knee on belly on purpose. Cause it was something we'd worked on a little bit and Shannon rolls and gets onto that heel. And I end up slipping out and I, I finished him, but he tapped verbally like three times before the ref stopped it. So the ref is now announcing for the UFC, like the Spanish version of the UFC, that Victor Davila fella. Mm -hmm. And he just didn't want the main event type thing to end. He's like, no, you can't already. You haven't even really been hit. <laughs> but just, the, just like the smell of an elbow coming down. Tap, tap, tap. He questioned his heart. It's incredible. <laughs> so so I, he, he Up until up you started throwing elbows, time. Shannon was winning that fight. He, of course, he almost had the hero. Serious, he's a tough dude. He really is a pretty tough guy. And I know where you got the third fight from. We were booked for a fight. We'll get into that. So I ended up finishing the fight. The referee kind of had a bit of a laugh, like I couldn't stop it on the first one. It was too fast, you know. It was only the first round. Well, Shannon fought like two days later in Texas. So that did, I mean that didn't make me feel great. You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> I guess I won the wrestle, but did my striking really win the fight or could that wrestle have continued had he decided to go for it fully and live or die today? So that's where I have like, like three, like three judgments of Shannon, like as a human, like in a guy, I love him. Like he cracks me up. I love it. <laughs> right. And then the other side is like the other extreme opposite is philosophically. I just can't get on board because he won't live or die right there that day. You know what no, I mean? No, like as a sportsman, no, no. It's, not, it's not like today matters more yeah. than anything else. No, he you needs know? to go to the next event to get that check. Yeah, yeah yes. exactly. So then that's where I find that middle ground where there's that bit of respect and a bit of, okay, fair enough. Like he just wants to make a living from this sport <laughs> and he'll compete every weekend, right? And he's never going to yeah. do the whole live or die thing. So we'll yeah. never be on the same page there. But wrestling taught me that. You know what I mean? Like, it was just, ah. He's got that self-preservation situation going on, which I totally understand that, too, because I didn't fight like Mike Tyson either. But, you know what I mean? You know, that's, so, that's, that's, uh, that's an old boxing mentality. We got the guys from the – who would just be the perennial losers who would go in there. Reggie Strickland, he's, you know, 85 yeah. and 270. You know, and just – I love Reggie Strickland. That was that is. You know, it's a boxing mentality. Yeah, but Reggie, yeah. Reggie never, like – He's only been finished like less well, he than get 15 finished. times. He's going the distance. Because if you go the distance, you can't fight the next week in boxing. You get a 30, 90, 60-day suspension. 
That's why he never stopped, Reggie. He goes out to the first round. He tries, and if you start to crack him, he's done it for the fight. He'll do eight rounds just moving and grabbing your butt. He was impossible to hit. I, I respect like, Reggie Strickland. You know, I fought him. Yeah, that's awesome. Did you? Yeah, that's, that's cool. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a whole different go, you know? So, yeah, so I just have those those three little shades of Shannon. Like, I can chat with him for hours. You know what I mean? If he was so doing a podcast, you meet your wife through him? I'd yeah. be in line. Well, the second time I fought him properly was uh, in California. I had signed that fight a long time before, beforehand. Um, my original opponent fell through two weeks out. And on the other side, I had the IFL coming to town, and Frank Shamrock had a team, and I was with Frank at the time. So we put together a team, and I was supposed to go up and fight what would have been uh, Joe Dirksen on Carlos Newton's team. That dude's badass. It was going to be a hell of a fight. Yeah, I was, I was nervous for that. Um, I kept the Shannon fight. Not, it wasn't supposed to be Shannon, but I kept this fight against what was supposed to be a younger up-and-coming guy thinking I'll get through that two weeks later, I'll fight Dirksen, right, for the, uh, for the IFL. So I get up there. It turns into Shannon Rich. The Athletic Commission had that Armando Garcia, the corrupt cop guy that was giving away tickets and using his position to ingratiate himself, probably fell under that emoluments clause that Trump's falling under. And um, he ended up sanctioning the Shannon Rich bout, knowing I've already beat him and seeing the two records. Like, Shannon's now 38 years old. I'm, like, 26, getting better. He's on probably the downhill side. But he still, like, lets the match go. So I clown and play a bit. Muhammad Ali, like, I backed up, like, against the cage and waved him in at one point. Um, he was trying to stay really long and throw kicks, and I chased him a bit and stood in the center of the ring and gave him this one, like, come on. And um, I ended up doing, like, a cartwheel guard pass, taking his back at some stage, and – getting like that Tony Fricklin, like big cup in the back, big arch. I wasn't fully under like locked in on a choke, but I was under his neck. So he was like banana shaped and he tapped. Before I even got out of the cage, like Armando Garcia snapping at me, hand in my face, blah, 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 blah. Apparently he was over in the corner yelling at Frank Shamrock saying like, he better, he better start fighting. I don't know what he's doing in there kind of thing. Now, I literally walked out to this fight with a female bodybuilder in a dress in high heels with a six foot chain around my neck, like rampage esque, but she's pulling it. I came out with my hoodie on, I hadn't shaved. I had like freak on a leash is my walkout song in San Francisco. And she's dragging me out and I'm grabbing the chain yelling, no, like trying to stand my ground and she give it a big yank and I'd stumble forward. And like, we had a big laugh. Now we're in San Francisco. So from the cheap sheets, it doesn't look like it's even a female. It looks like a man. She was 205 pounds of like solid muscle. Ooh. Yeah, like we met her. We met her alongside Jay Cutler at a uh, at an event for like a, a protein supplement company. <laughs> and she had like her own stand. Like she was she was yeah. like the female Jay Cutler. Would you be interested in? <laughs> <laughs> so it was. Do you want some protein, boys? <laughs> oh, man. You know? So, again, yes, just setting the scene, because it's San Francisco, it was funnier. I wouldn't have done this back in Indiana. I'd have got lynched. But in San Francisco, it was a bit hilarious. Yeah. So, oh, I'm going to laugh at the whole thing. I go out, and I'm loose and playful. And then this guy suspends me indefinitely. So, I couldn't go fight for the IFL. I had a good contract, a good oh. pace, a wicket. And I had some tough fights coming up that would have got me to the UFC earlier if I just performed – to my capabilities so it was a bit of a heartbreak 
I turned down a fight in Australia for XFC beforehand because I had all this in place. Um, and when it all fell apart, I wrote Justin Lawrence of XFC and said, hey, have you found anyone for that fight? I think I can take it. And I ended up going to Australia. I slept in the gym um, for two months and had two fights. I was showering out of a cold hose every night. Um, and yeah, just roughing it. But it gave me time to reflect and, and realize like, Young, dumb what? college kid, lost his college scholarship, bop, 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 you know, and that couple months actually set me on a really good path. And as I kind of joked and alluded to before, a couple of years later, I met my wife over here and, and here I am settled and staying here. So yeah, you Shannon know, Rich, like roundabout way, thank you. It was fun and it was cool, but it was heartbreaking and it sucked, but it led to somewhere pretty good. Good and healthy. Well, I, I think Shannon also publicly stated that Oh, it was a fixed fight. We were just goofing around in it. I think, I think that's what also kind of sank like that that boat, you know, so to say. If he said that, I don't think it was any time around the time that we were being questioned by the commission. But yeah, thanks for that, Shannon. Rub one off. <laughs> I, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. You, but I, I need one of those losses to be a no contest all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let me ask you, Brian. So, so clearly, you met your wife after that time period where you were. Closing yourself down out of a sink, right? You, 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 yeah, I didn't meet any girls. <laughs> so, uh, how odd. <laughs> I was sleeping in a gym in an industrial part of town, in a small town. Like, the cities were north and south of me. Like, I was in middle of nowhere. Kankakee. Yeah. Right? Kankakee. Yeah. The college town down south and in the city up north was, was not easy to get to. So, yeah, I was just training, sleeping in a gym, training, sleeping in a gym, training for a while. And um, I ended up coming back to Australia with the hopes of working for Justin Lawrence and another company in real estate and going around selling investment properties. And um, I ended up getting a fight offer and a job offer as a coach on the other side of the country when I did come back. And that just seemed a bit more fun than real estate. So that's where I ended up getting like my two or three year working visa. And, and that was like the really the big latch for me to be able to make a go of staying overseas. Now, you also fought uh, UFC Hall of Famer Stefan Bauer earlier in your career. Yeah. Would you mind reminiscing about that? I hate that building, man. The Hammond Civic Center. Building. Chris, that's it. our home, brother. <laughs> it is the coolest venue for fights. I just effing hate the place because I couldn't win a fight there. <laughs> I had Adrian Serrano beat and took a bad shot and got, got rear naked choked. You know what I mean? Didn't even know how to defend one back then. But it was frustrating. And then with Stefan, fought one good round with him, uh, boxed a lot. And he was, he was meant to be a Golden Glove boxer and a jiu-jitsu guy. Um, he was a fair bit bigger than me, and he still is. Um, so it was supposed to be like a four-man tournament. And um, second round, I shot a double leg, took him down. He guillotined me. I tapped because I knew I was too tired to get out of it. Like, that wasn't going to work. And he had good jiu-jitsu. So I didn't fall asleep and die on my shield that day. And I vowed to myself, like, never again. And I've never been guillotined since. But, yeah, like, again, one of the ones where when you go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the guy that ends up getting to the UFC, doing what he did with Forrest Griffin, you know, like, and I, I think I'd already had – I had my time in Australia sleeping in that gym and, and being able to kind of have a hard word with myself because I was by myself for, for most of it. Um, as a younger man, I might have looked at it and said, why isn't that me? But at that time, it was like – that could be me. If I just make the right decisions and do the right thing and follow the path, I'll get there. So um, really cool to see some of these again. 
these guys you rub shoulders with, when they succeed, it just the rising tide should rise all ships. Just don't have any holes in your goddamn ship. <laughs> did, did you expect right there? Yeah, did you 100%. expect him to get to the levels that he fought at? Did you expect that out of Stefan at the time? Um, man, honestly, he's got one of those bodies. And let's let's bypass Usad and all the stuff that he did later in his career. I, I met him when he was young. Like he had no reason to want to enhance anything. That guy was a monster. Yeah. Like I don't know what he did. Like he kettlebells and cardio and this and that. But like just his frame. <laughs> I would rent that body, take it and fight whoever in the world, and then pay for damages like a rental car and try to hopefully <laughs> keep the excess as like my profit. Like, let me put my brain in some of these bodies I've seen on these athletes and we'll be good. And he had one of those bodies. So, yeah, yeah I think as long as he kept training, like the guy got to train with like Andre Arlovsky and stuff like that too. Like he had guys around him that had some stuff going on that should have raised his confidence level to go, well, I don't care who I'm fighting, I'll show up. Yeah. You know, if you have that kind of confidence, well, you're going to do okay. Yeah. Now, now, talk about one of the things that it's – Brian, you had a long career. You put in a lot God, of work. Tell me about it. A lot of miles and stuff. Do you sometimes worry that the highlight of your career is fighting Dennis Hallman? Because <laughs> that's a moment that everybody remembers, dude. Speedo game. He made it memorable. He made Talk it so about memorable. that whole story. Remind people about it. Yeah, when did you realize he was wearing a, a Speedo for the fight? He like, came at what point? jumped into the middle of the ring in my face. I couldn't help but notice before the fight. I didn't – I mean, he came right out and did this in the middle of the cage. And but there was no – But it's like like he told you before, like – Nothing like, in a locker room? Or in a locker room or like, dude, I got a sponsor. No, not the same locker like, room. All a surprise. You – you look out and you're fighting a naked man. <laughs> I was in the ring. I was in the cage first. Yeah, you were there first. God. So then he came out and came up the stairs, which I probably didn't notice him come up the stairs. But when he came up, he came straight out, whether he did a little loop or whatever. He went straight to the middle of the octagon and did like a big sideways hamstring stretch. <laughs> and like, yes, he did. Yes, he did. He did like a Cossack, like that Pavel Tatsulin, the kettlebell guy. Yeah. He did a Cossack. From side to side and extended each leg and put his ass to the ground. And Did I'm you like, want to talk to him about this? Like, hey, man, let's, let's, you know, we've got some problems here. Maybe we don't got to do this today. You know, could we get you some of the help that you might need? <laughs> you know, like, my interesting answer to everyone is I wrestled my whole life. It's not a shock. Like, yeah. we weighed in <laughs> naked half the time when we had. So it didn't like, bother you at all. It didn't we stood along in tidy whiteies. Like, a hundred dudes in a row, a single file line going up to a scale. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. we wore speedos that, you know, were boner huggers. Like it wasn't, it wasn't the most shocking thing. I'm just sitting there thinking like Frank Shamrock, Ken Shamrock, Dan Severn, Marco Huas. List goes on like of guys that have that worn stuff. similar, but not quite that bold. And obviously it had been so long since someone had worn it. On that big of a stage, it's you know, that's true. That's that's now, a good let, argument. Let me ask you a question. It's I a mean, classy Joe's argument. Were, were a thong, <laughs> but uh, but like, after that, like Holman obviously was like, you, like Dana was pissed at him and stuff like that. Like, do you, did you he ever hear what he got paid it. for that, or like what was he what was he doing? And then the other part of it is that Holman 
is a talented dude. You know, if he had been focused when he wanted to, that guy was a magic dude. Well, listen, like, I'm coming into this fight, like, you know, early in my UFC career, this guy had beat my wrestling coach twice. Twice, in like 20 seconds each time. And I told you, I put him on a pedestal. Like, Matt, I couldn't touch Matt in the wrestling room. He, it was not even a thing. Like, he was the strongest human being ever. He had such good technique. Like, I couldn't break his posture. Discipline, too. Like, he used to throw half Nelsons on me. And I'm flat on my chest. You know, imagine, like, that screen's the floor, right? And I'm miming this. So I'd have my hand trapped underneath me with my elbow out half the time with wrist control. He'd throw a half Nelson. This shoulder would end up on this ear. But because this elbow stuck straight out to the side, I can't roll over to my back. <laughs> I literally, I couldn't let him pin me. He was ripping both shoulders apart. Like, it was, was like being full Nelson. It was messed up. Like, Matt, you don't have to run a power half because every half Nelson you have is powerful. Can you please unlock your hands and stop breaking my arm? No way. You know, Not I had a another... I had another coach that was Russian that was lighter than all of us, but he was like a freak, like sort of MMA interested guy too. And he would just choke us in front headlocks all the time. It's legal. It's your fault. You should get out. Okay. So sleeping in the middle of our room. You, so you wonder why half of us turned out to be MMA fighters. Like yeah. we're in the wrestling, but we're fighting half the time. All right. So what about the locker room afterward? Was any yelling from Dana or anybody backstage in regards to it? But what was their conversation so, with you? The first I heard of it was at the um, press conference. I'm sitting next to Vitor Belfort. So Dana's in the middle, then Vitor, then me. And there might have even been someone to the side of Vitor. I just knew I was outside of Vitor from the middle of the podium. And um, he, he started giving away bonuses, and I'm getting a bit hot and, like, warm and, like, excited. And he said, knockout of the night goes to Vitor Belfort. And my heart sunk. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I TKO'd him. I thought, shit, man, I threw some mean elbows. People were online, Twitter, calling them elbows and all sorts, right? So I was a bit excited. And it was a bit of a funny ground and pound. Like, some of it was loose and limp, and other was a bit Mark Coleman looking. So I was like, oh, come on. And then he says, and I've never given out this bonus before, and I didn't know what he was about to say. I'm still, like, half sad, but I'm still riding the high of winning. But I'm like, man, that's 50 grand. Could change my life. And um, he says – and this bonus is for getting them god awful shorts off TV. And my ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh my, ah! <laughs> all right, I end up getting that bonus and having a bit of a laugh. And um, the rest of the press conference, there was a bit stuff going on. And I probably gave that same answer, like, "What did you think when he came out?" I'm like, "Well, I laughed. Like, I've wrestled my whole life. I've seen that stuff before. We've all peacocked and showboated and had a bit of a play." So. <laughs> good on him. And I go, it's going to be memorable. And sure enough, you know, here we are almost a decade later, still talking about it. Yeah. Chris, Chris always talks about like, that's his biggest remembrance of the training mask. He's like, Chris said that he reread that guy's shorts at least 50 times. Wrong brother. Wrong, <laughs> you were telling us the exact time when you could see his jump. Well, like 235. 235 in the first round. Yeah. Okay. There you go. See, you know what's right up. there. I'm in the, I'm in the van heading home from that fight that was in Philadelphia and um, I get a screenshot from one of my friends via like <laughs> Facebook of like, and I didn't know, I didn't know it fully exposed like that. I, I do remember like chatting, like um, with my coach, like, Oh, like you hit him in the nuts or this or that. And I was like, Oh, I remember feeling the cup, like 
as I turned down, you know, I remember feeling something hard, but I didn't know it exposed everything. And like, sure enough, it was like windows open, windows closed. So yeah, that the internet and phones and technology <laughs> sort of made that a, a frozen living moment. All right. What about your fight with uh, Hector Lombard? Hate that guy. <laughs> what about it? Strong well, guy. Well, everybody, Indiana. everybody, we, everybody we know. Aside from being a monster, everybody we know. Everybody says Cubans are crazy, and you know he's one uh, among the Cubans. They say he's crazy. So there's got to be a story there. And you're fighting yeah, in Australia. Sure. He was. He was. He went. He went around Australia. He well. Here we go. Let's call back to Chris Brown, the Olympian wrestler we spoke of. Chris Brown went out to glove touch, and Hector threw an overhand right and finished the fight. Really? So that never that was never a fight. Uh, no. And that's no. a shame because like, and, that, and that'll take someone like remember Chris is, would have been older. He'd have been forty. Uh. So do you, do you really want to fight after that? That's the taste that's left in your mouth, like. Mm physically but also like fuck these guys like i'm an olympian i come out and show some respect this is martial arts apparently and i get mm -hmm. this fucking guy yeah mm. you know so not really impressed he went around heel hooking people and hurting people all the time like i saw like a sparring clip of him at a gym i ended up working at um and i'd seminared for before i ever worked for him but when i finally settled um and i've seen the clip and just some guy that's never done anything you know what I mean? Oh, let's spar. Throws a leg kick, doesn't know what he's doing, and Hector blasts him and pushes him into, like, glass. Like, glass-mirrored sliding doors. Like, I'm, oh, you're joking. Yeah. It just, he, it just pummels him. Just pummels him on the ground. Like, what is that? He went, but yeah, so he, many stories of him hurting people. Yeah, he went, the story, like, the, you know, people refused to confirm with me, at least on this show, is that him and Barnett were going back and forth at ATT and Barnett Great guess, story. got him in a heel hook or something like that. And Lombard started screaming, going off, left to go outside. They thought he was just done for the day and came back in with a baseball bat. And he had to be psyched, <laughs> he literally held down so he wouldn't uh, you know, commit some sort of heinous battery. Well, I was told that Barnett held him down for a good 25, 30 minutes and tortured him. Oh, really? And pissed him off. Yeah, like like just said, you think you're tough. Well, what happens when you're the when you're the nail on a day? So I heard it was more of a like like, a, like he emasculated him and held him down and picked on him. Yeah, I, I, Barnett, I can see that more. Barnett, Barnett coming from Hume, you know the, the, that school does that. They do that. They well, that's a beast well too, man. I can see him holding him down like that. Yeah, and just a bully. Yeah, you can't a bully. Stop him. Barnett would get off on that. I could see it. Well, I mean, I sometimes mean, from what you're telling me, has, I don't... every school has that guy, right? Every JIT school has that enforcer. That's the strong guy that you want to pick on the little guys. Well, let's see what you can do with this. Yeah, Grab some yeah. rebar and try to bend it. Remember, yeah, you guys yeah. are from the Midwest. Remember, Militich had Mark Hansen. You guys remember Mark Hansen? I, I don't personally, but yeah. he was like a dude. He was like 280, and he was like who, the guy they trained with. He was a horse. Never really fought a lot of MMA. But uh, I think he got to five and zero, oh and then then stopped doing it or something. But anyway, he was yeah. There's always a secret guy, Barnett. I can see it. the fact is, it's from what you're telling me. Lampa probably deserves an ass kicking every oh, once in a while. That's <laughs> what I think it happens. Yeah. Barnett's not going to do it just to be a dick. He did it for a reason, I'm sure. Yeah. Hmm. Hey, what about yeah, uh, Carlos? His his mouth. Yeah, I'd love to hear the story from him. Joe Rogan should have asked him. Yeah. <laughs> what about uh, Carlos Newton? 
oh man, like highlight of my career in a sense. Yeah, like I almost I retired that. after that though. I didn't think I was getting in the UFC. They um they told me they didn't need an American with thirteen or fourteen losses coming over. I tried to get on UFC one ten, which was the first one. Then I tried getting on one twenty seven, and that was the message I got back. And in between somewhere in there, um, I got offered to go on like the ultimate fighter like seven in Vegas, but I couldn't go because I had a fight lined up that weekend and they wanted me to fly out. We never even got around to the whole who's paying for the flight, this and that. But I stuck with that show. And that was the weekend I did the cartwheel kick and got the knockout that's went viral. Yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm sort of glad I stuck, stuck back to do that. And it worked out in the end. Um, but yeah, it was, um, it was a tough one. Like I just beat a UFC champ and they're telling me that I can't get in. Like I don't have a chance of getting in. Like, what do you mean? So uh, I fought him in Brisbane. Um, had a really good camp going into that. And I ended up just making my mind up, like, if I'm going to wrestle, it'll be a takedown, but I'm standing right back up. You know, if I take him down, it's just to show that I can or because it was there. But I don't really – he was so dangerous. He's so good on the ground. You know, I just didn't want didn't to do it. So I got the win, like, kind of just grinding and wrestling and pushing and punching and kneeing. And, um, yeah, I was kind of happy with, with the performance and had a good chat with him after. Um, but then I was a bit disillusioned. Like, I'm not going to get in. What am I going to do? Like, why don't I just coach? Like, I'll make just as much money coaching and maybe take the odd fight here and there. So um, I ended up taking a fight in New Zealand, like, oh, seven, eight months later. But I got to choose my own opponent. So it wasn't like a big dangerous one. It was just, hey, we'd love to have you on the show for your name value to sell some tickets, da, 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 da. It ended up being like a bikey run type show, like gangster run show. Um, <laughs> good on them. So they didn't care. They didn't really need to sell tickets. They didn't need me to sell any. So uh, <laughs> I won a fight and, and won that one and then got lucky enough to get the call up. But yeah, with Carlos, like I thought, hey, if, if anything's going to get their attention, beating a champ will. And then when they just were kind of like nonplussed about it, I was just like, man, what do I, like, what do you want me to do? Like, yeah. <laughs> What me to do? No, Nothing else nice I can guy. do. I'd fought Kyle Noak. I'd fought Hector Lombard. When I fought Hector, I had to drink probably two liters of water, which is almost four pounds, and a glass of wine before I got on the scale to get above 77. So really? I'd fought – yeah, I, I dropped down to 70 that whole year of 2009. Man, how was difficult was that? Two years. I was six foot, 150, 157, 158. I was waking up at like 168. So I was under the 77 kilo limit waking up. But because I'd fought middleweight up until that point, you know what I mean? Like I never settled it even at welter. I went straight from middleweight down to lightweight, being vegetarian, just training my ass off. I was living in the gym in Perth where I coached. I'd sleep upstairs and come down and train all day. I'd wake up at midnight and hit a bag in my underwear so I could save on laundry, you know, like just have a laugh, but true story. Wow. And, um, so you fought yeah, all the way up to heavyweight. I had to get up above 77.1 to fight him, and he was obviously cutting to 84. But it was the only fight to take. Like, there was no other fight here. I'd already fought Kyle Noak, and then he fought Kyle. And so then it was kind of like, well, I beat Dylan Andrews, who got to the UFC um, on his own right. So it was like, well, who else is there to fight? Well, Hector. Wow. Wow. Um... Yes. Didn't have too many too many other fights after that, to be honest. Like I I beat guys at ninety three kilos over here as well. Um, 
So yeah, after I fought Hector, I got another fight at 77. The guy at least saw, hey, Brian's not invincible. You know what I mean? So he took the fight and I beat him. And then it was kind of slim pickings after that. So now, uh, like every country's kind of got like a badass, like Lee Murray from, you know, the United Kingdom. Um, you guys, Australia has Ian Shafa. Is, is his, like, reputation, uh, like, deserved in regards to, like, what, what we hear about him? So I fought Ian, and he was, like, one of the most respectful guys, like, leading into the fight. And I fought him down at, like, 72 kilos. So this is one okay. of the few fights I got at that lighter weight when I, when I got skinny, right? Um, so respect for him taking that fight, knowing it was going to be a tough one. So we fought. We chatted after. He ended up, like, interviewing me when I got into the UFC, uh, in Sydney, he came up with like uh, uh, another like pretty girl, and they both had this. This is what we're doing, and it's a blah 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 raising awareness for this and that. It was kind of like it had like a charitable vibe to it. That's cool. And um, running a website, right? So um, good stuff. But like, if I go like six years before, five years before all that, like when I was first in Australia, I saw the guy get into a street fight after a fight show, <laughs> and we're walking around with like another promoter, like. If I'm around another promoter, like, Miguel, you would have saw me at the M1 when I fought for you. Like, I'm going to try to be on my best behavior and show him a good guy that I have another opportunity. I want to come back. This guy gets in a bloody street fight with some karate guy, it looked like, because the guy took a pose and, like, threw some high kicks and was talking about you don't know who I am, which made Ian laugh, as you do. The guy had a million fights himself. I literally sat down with someone else that was out with us, and me and him, like, split, like, some candy bars. And we sat on a sidewalk like it was a movie theater and just watched this surreal <laughs> street fight happen. Like Ian punched one guy in a suit and knocked him cold and then had this like protracted, I'm telling you, no less than 12, 15 minutes standoff. <laughs> wow. Where it was like they would fight a little bit and then they'd get back and talk and like show, like the one guy. Kind of peacock a little bit. I'm talking seven minutes in, this drunk karate guy literally went up to a street sign and, like, kicked a street sign that was head height. And he goes, you know what I'll do to you? And I'm like, well, we've been watching for seven minutes. And you've only hit a park so far. <laughs> you, know? yet. you haven't done it quite yet, you know? And they just went at it, and it was the weirdest thing when they finally just walked away. But I'm like, I am not getting in the middle of this. Like, I'm not. <laughs> Why? Not my job. Not my okay, job. Every few seconds, yell "world star" and you know, let, let oh, it go viral. It know? wasn't a thing back then, or I would have. But I was, I was being silly and obnoxious. I was like half cornering the other guy. And, uh, <laughs> can you imagine? I'm sitting on a sidewalk in the middle of a big city at like 1 a.m. I That's literally fantastic. just when I got those candy bars, I was getting like one of those 1-800 phone cards where you scratch off the the code so I can call back to the U.S. and talk to my parents because I just bought. That's you know what fair. I mean? Like, I just fought, like, a couple hours before, so I wanted to tell them, you know, how everything went. It was the weirdest thing. The weirdest. And then huh. similar story, I went to Melbourne on one of those, and I coached a kid, and I did the same thing. I'm on my iPhone 3, scratch-off card, calling mom. I'm literally talking to my mom, and I got king hit. I got punched by some random guy that came off of, like, the side of a building <laughs> and hit me. And then they stood there for, like, 20 minutes, so... Finally, a cop car came down, and I flagged him, and I go, I'm okay, but that guy hit me, like, 10, 15 minutes ago for, like, no reason. The cops went up and talked to him, and they were so drunk. It was so weird. Like, the people that were with him were trying to be my friend after, and, like, they took him to the drunk tank, and 
do you want to press charges? I said, no, just scare him in the morning. You know what I mean? But yeah, so weird. Like, par- par- partying in, in Australia is different than partying in the <laughs> Some loose cannons over here, I tell you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you remember you remember the M1 show? Well, what are your thoughts on that? Because that was a, like I, I don't remember any show I ever did where like the American team versus the Russian team where the American team came together so kind of like united and happy and stuff and like it turned out to be it was one of the coolest it was one of the coolest moments of my career and i've talked about it as a turning point so thank you that that was (laughs) get rid of all that real quick it was awesome um again to rub shoulders with chael sonan justin eilers chat lavender like you had a stacked card but we were a ragtag ass group of just tough dudes right they were a team a real team coming over so I didn't know until the weigh-ins and medicals when I had to sign off on my commission paperwork, that guy was like 27 and three. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for that. Well, <laughs> I, I took that one on a short notice coming up a weight class. I thought that guy was like 10 and one. 27 and three that Alexei Veselazarov. Yeah, he had a hard name and stuff. And he, the guy looked exactly like Bustamante, remember? <laughs> he was a monster. Like, like, you talk about that Stefan Bonner body. Yeah, That's yeah. what I felt. I felt like I was fighting Stefan Bonner again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was American kickboxing he posture, so big, like, wide back. Yeah. All right, so. Yeah, big, I thought I was going to show off my stand-up. He broke your nose. All these guys were like Russian national karate champions, European taekwondo. And for us Americans, we kind of laughed like, oh, these are like taekwondo guys. They train with Fedor, so they're going to grapple a little bit, right? But we all just thought they'd be like stand and wang karate guys until we saw the first fight. Ron Faircloth went out and fought a guy that was throwing hammers. (laughs) And we're like, that's not 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 taekwondo karate that we know. Yeah, Eilers Eilers got got thrown out of the ring, and he landed in my lap. The guy tossed him clear out of the ring in that fight. I remember Eilers got up and goes, all right, let's go. And he got back in and and fucking jabbed him to death, man, you know. But But we got serious real quick after that, you know what I mean? And then the guy you fought was a monster. He went on to have a really good career as well, as did Travis. But, um, yeah, that – Trevor Plangley fought – uh, Andre Semenov on that card. It was a good card. It was definitely. It good was card. great. Yeah, that card was was off the chain. Like I'd love to see video. Do you have video of that? Can I get a link somewhere? Yes, I, I I've never watched your fight. fight. I, I I'll, I've I'll never send seen it. To it. You. I'll send it to you here. Thank you. I, I yeah. was going to tell you. Um, uh, I remember you walking in like at five in the morning after that fight. Like you know, after fight party with a bottle of champagne. I remember that. <laughs> yes. That was the first time I really met Chael Sonnen and had a good chat with him, like like in the in-club nightclub of the venue. Uh-huh. And we had a blast. But he was like the nicest guy. Yeah, the problem you know? the problem with fighting for Miguel on his shows was like you'd fight a guy that was four and two, and his name would be Joachim Hansen. And you'd be like, Oh yeah, you know, I, I don't know who he is. You get there, you go, wait a minute, this yeah. is deep water. He'd always yeah. bring over these Europeans that like you didn't know who they were until you saw them fight, and you were like, "Ooh." Well, you know what? You know what Miguel never did, though. He never went the other way and took like a one and O Cain Velasquez and a two and O Daniel Cormier over to Europe to bash people. 
Yeah, he Never did. did that. No, yeah, it's, 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 pretty pretty favorite story, bro. it's a little hard. <laughs> I did what yeah. I could, guys. I, but yeah, yeah, that that was a fun show, and I know I remember Ebersole was probably in one of the grittiest of the fights on that one because I, I remember the guy broke your nose, and I remember that you got the finish in the third round late. I got a nice, nice brown gray tooth here from that fight. I thought I, thought I was going to lose it between round two and three. Jesus! Oh. All right, so Brian, we always we play a game called the asshole game. We just throw yes. a name at you. It's Yes or no, you got a little thing you want to throw in there with it. I mean, you can. You know, it's up to you. Miguel, why don't you start? We'll do a round robin. Well, uh, let's go ahead and keep it in Australia. What about uh, uh, the uh, Elvis Innocent guy? Fuck that guy. Love him. (laughs) Sweet. He's awesome. So Elvis's school is four miles from my house, where I'm sitting right now. Really? Yeah. Now, I, I probably could have worked for Elvis had I not worked for another gym first. I, there's a guy that's up the road from Elvis that I've known for like 12 years, and I ended up working for him. Um, and I didn't want, when I quit, I didn't want to go right over to Elvis's and, and be part of the competition. So I'm at my own gym now, like a good 20 miles away. But um, Elvis is, is a great dude. He's always been open-armed. He's definitely in it for the greater good of the sport. Like you can see him really trying to grow Aussie MMA and like doing the right thing. And um, he's got a huge Academy. It's awesome. Like I love the floor space he's got in the setup. Um, but yeah, like he's, he's really, he's really proud of that role of like Australian pioneer. You know, and he was the first guy in the UFC. Um, and I think he's represented himself as a martial artist really well. Very well. Um, really is a good guy for that spot. You know what I mean? Like he's not, he's not on social media being, grumpy or weird or anything like that you know so yeah he's definitely <laughs> definitely a good figurehead for australian mma all right so i'm going travis fulton i i don't know one way or another i've only met him twice of all the fights we had i'd only met him twice same with jeremy horn i met like jeremy three times okay you now know, those guys, but, but some of those guys, I, see those gotta be those old school shows though from the midwest you gotta have seen some type of disaster story from those shows back then you could share with us or something. Come on. Um, well, I only fought I, – I never fought on an extreme challenge for Monty. Right? That, that's but, what I was going to ask did, you about Monty. <laughs> but I did, I did corner a fighter up there. Um, I took my college roommate with no major experience at all, like a couple fights, and he fought Tim Sylvia and gave him a, <laughs> a decent time at like an outdoor cage event. Damn. You know, he had – Tim had to work for that. Tim was like 15 and 0 at this time and already beaten Cabbage Carrera in Hawaii. He was coming off that Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. My roommate did all right. Had, had he been half Mike Russo, he'd have probably murdered him. Yeah. But um, I mean, Tim, Tim obviously closed up those holes on takedown defense and whatnot before he got to the UFC. Um, but there were a couple mismatches on that show. <laughs> I'll leave yeah. it at that. Like, let me, bless, let me, it was let a me great sh- outlet and a platform, but fuck. There hey, were some dudes I, that were just fed to monsters. I would, I was like it when you go on to some of those shows and you'd be like, okay, I'm fighting, and the three judges are Jamie Horn, Matt Hughes. It was like it was all my these guys with yeah. the ref, with the with the judges. <laughs> Probably all the referees. Yeah, yeah. Let me. I'm gonna dad. Let me share a little story with you, Brian, just to get your stories flowing here, because I know you've seen too much in your fights, man. 
I we forgot had, most we had of a, it, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> we had a crew of guys come from Panama to fight here in Costa Rica. Three dudes on the team. None of them bought a cup. So they bought one and shared it. <laughs> yeah. They would take it out right at ringside, hand it to the other guy. The other guy would put it in right at ringside. I was like, man, I don't I I'm just glad I've never seen that before or never saw it again. But I mean you see weird things, man, in those old school shows. That happens a lot. <laughs> How about does, Australia I, though? Well, I had a kid go to his first like martial arts tournament. You know, he just started training kickboxing. We're not the most formal. We don't have like the the century martial arts little bag, you know what I mean? Of like hand shields, kick shields, dot, 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 dot. So he shows up, no mouthpiece, no cup. But you signed up for kickboxing. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> so we, we had to send him out to like a rebel sport to get a mouthpiece, but he couldn't find a cup. They were out. So we had, I had like three guys that day sharing a cup, going in the back behind the bleachers, changing, coming back behind the bleachers, coming back. Um, I was introduced to the Muay Thai Cup, the metal one, okay. the, the Revolution Show that Brian Foster and Kevin Randleman headlined. That's where I met John Fitch. So John Fitch fought Mike Pyle, and I fought a guy from Canada up there. John had to borrow a cup. That's crazy. Wow. He, borrowed, he borrowed a metal Muay Thai Cup, and we had to figure out how to tie it. Like, it was awkward. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I, Nick, I Nick Thompson did a weigh-in in one of those. Yeah, Nick Thompson is on my list. Yeah. Yeah, he's a funny duck. Fought him as well. He's a funny fella. He's a lawyer now. Yeah, he's a lawyer now. Well, he's yeah. been for a while, but yeah, that's what he's doing. That's awesome. And I got a tip for you. If we were doing an over-under on his weight, take the over on 220. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm dad bod too. Yeah, dang. I would have guessed. What about uh, Jason Guida? No comment. Damn, I got one. I knew I would get one. I knew I would get it, Miguel. I told you. No <laughs> I can't do it. I got to be diplomatic. I love Clay. All right, there we go. I love so, Clay. That's right, that's right, that's right. Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Clay name? Out. We, yeah. huh? your, your turn. All right. What, oh, what do you got on uh, Joe Silva there? Joe Silva. Yeah. Oh, that's mixed. That's right? Like, mixed like he was pretty good to me like i sort of got to tell him when i was ready to fight and it always happened there was never a time where he strung me along like hey i'll be ready in april and then he didn't give me a yeah. fight till september you well, know what i mean know, you talked about him be like yeah we're not gonna use you because you know with that voice how you're you've lost too many or something you know what i mean so yeah like, I mean, really yeah wow but i was looks like i'm the him. only one with he one didn't. on this one All right, Miguel, i wasn't turn. working with him then right so Fair enough. Like that was his judgment. But once I got yeah. in and he had to work with me, I guess he treated me fair. Okay. You know? Good morning, Chris. I shot myself in the foot. I went four and zero, and then I spent a week in Vegas doing the expo after my after my fourth fight in New Jersey. I came back and did the expo in Vegas. Yeah. And um, you know, me and my wife were there, and you know, drinking and eating and doing the thing. And then I saw that uh, this kid lost his opponent at welterweight, and I went, I want in. Just being greedy. I should have just <laughs> left it alone. And I yeah. lost like a split decision. So, you know, yeah. had I been, had I won that fight, which I should have, had it been 5-0, and oh, then I'd have been sitting there going, all right, now Joe Silva owes me something. Yeah. And then I could have judged him. Like that question, I could have said, based on that answer, did he help me as a 5-0 and oh athlete or did he hold me back? 
but yeah. as it went, you know, I'm four and one, and then I just kept my career going and, you know, finished out doing my thing. And yeah, I, he treated me fair, but all the other stuff from all the other guys coming out, I can see it very much as true. Cause I've seen some emails and I know some people um, that fought, you know, and I know their story and it's not always, it's not always the nice side. Like you're, there's yeah. no negotiating with them. Oh, yeah. I never, I didn't get to negotiate a, a, a second contract or a third contract and get anything out of them. It was, no, this is what we're doing. Like I came <laughs> in on 6,000 and 6,000, like with 50 fights, 60 oh. fights, 65 fights. I said, come on, you guys are paying Hector Lombard like 120 and 110, you know, yeah. like to win. Like, what do you mean? Went four yeah. rounds with the guy. Like, I've, I've, I've just beat a UFC champion. Yeah, there's not much negotiation with them. There never like, has been, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, like, come on. So, right, so you, you spent time that in was California. A one, but, yeah, I can't, I can't hold him to account for that. He was doing his job. So, yeah. Right, so you spent time in California, which kind of opens up yeah. the playing field. What about Frank Shamrock? Oh, love him. Oh, I owe him so much. I can never pay him back. Uh, what about I Ken Shamrock? So what about Ken? Don't know him. Oh, really? Probably an asshole. <laughs> no, never, never met him. What, what about crazy talk, talk about Crazy Bob because crazy uh, Bob. I, I always used to love calling him up. I I always used to call him by his formal name, which is Deranged Robert. Yes, <laughs> yes. So I, I was the same way for a long time. Me and Bob had a lot of chats and, and a lot of times, and I'm I'm glad I had someone. He was a good mix of soft and hard. Um, and I, I at that time I probably needed that coming out of college, having not been able to wrestle my last couple of years, and just being not totally wayward, but you know what I mean? Like just trying to catch on in this sport and make something of it. And I got to sleep, you know, in a, a five bedroom house and share it with him and Josh Thompson, Pat Minahan. He gave me a job at a bar. I was, you know, digging ditches and cleaning up. I was cleaning up roof tiles from Mexican guys that were doing skilled work. I was like the antithesis to the stereotype, <laughs> but I owe him a lot. Like he gave us as much as he could. You know what I mean? Like, he was raising two kids that he was sharing custody with. Uh, he was trying to manage all these fighters. He knew he was on the brink of something big. Frank um, was there and it ran and did its thing. And now they're trying to recruit all these young guys. And um, yeah, like I, I couldn't pay him or Javier or, or Frank for the time they gave me, you know? So hey, Javier Mendez, yeah, good, dude. Yeah. good dude, huh? Yeah. yeah. Like so, but you were there like before they got the Cormier and stuff, or was Cormier hanging around the back ground? Did you ever get to grapple with those guys? No, or is, so, is it really modernized? So that's all modern for me. Like when I when I was there, I flew out to Buffalo to train Josh Koscheck with okay. him for his first fight. So I booked that fight. It was in Colorado, and it was me, Josh, and Mike Kyle on that card. Um, that I was able to to get fights for. Had a great trip. Uh, went three and zero. And then Josh ended up moving out before I left, but he didn't come train with us. Really, he stayed down in Fresno near Zinkin, the manager. And he was because he was a like a four time All American wrestler, and Zinkin was big in the wrestling with Fresno State. And you know his family had money. His dad was wealthy, and he's a lawyer and all that stuff, right? So he ingratiated himself down there and was doing just private lessons to make a living and then training martial arts down in Fresno. And after about a year or so moved up to, to San Jose. 
when they knew he was going to be able to support himself with his fight persons. So um, he had a, a, a nice entry into, into the whole California scene. I left with Frank when Frank opened his first gym on his own. And three weeks later, all the boys were on airplanes to go to the Ultimate Fighter 1. And so there were like five of them going. And then John Fitch got called at the last minute and his bags got taken off. He was on the plane, bags loaded, sitting down. They really? pulled him off the plane. He didn't know why. It wasn't until he got a phone call and got in that all oh, the UFCs decided not to put you on the show. Oh. Wow. So John had to deal with his fair share of fuckery as well. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah, he's, he stayed the path. He was a level-headed guy. Oh, we'll get to John. Did the right thing. We'll get to him. Trust yeah. me. Well, he'll, he'll be on here, and that asshole game is going to be phenomenal with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He'll have something to say. <laughs> well, by the way, that. Brian, I would I would like to thank you for giving me a couple things. Not only my last loss in MMA, but also this big ass scar on my forehead from one of the lads. About a minute left or thirty seconds, I can't remember, but an elbow hit me. And, uh, I thanks. just <laughs> I didn't want to deal with no judges if I didn't have to. <laughs> man, and thank no, man. you. That was that was one hell of a day. Yeah, man. To be able I mean, to come in and fight a legend, like I was I was riding high, like. A lot of guys would shrink a little bit, but I'm like, man, I finally got my chance, and I'm fighting yeah, something good. Like, you shine, man. It was good, man. And, uh, you know, um, the, it, that's a, I, I, gotta be honest. Be, I, I didn't like the fight to be in. I was like, man, this is a way tougher fight than anybody realizes. It's going to be a bit. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's fun, though. You know, at least we won the fight tonight, made it good. So that's it. Paid. That's it. <laughs> and you went on and still, you went on and smacked another couple guys around. So I only had one fight after that, man. One more. That's it's cool, though. I remember that. That's just I, – I can't watch fights like that. I hate watching guys when I know both guys, man. It's just like yeah. – it's like, you know, I don't want to – I got to root against somebody, and if I don't want to root against yeah. somebody, I'm like, this sucks. I like both guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got to do the same thing in a few weeks. I'm uh, – I don't know if you guys know that Wimpter Warrior program that they've got. Uh -uh. You guys heard of that? It's a 20-week it. – it's a 20-week season where they take just average people. And they pull them in, they train them for 20 weeks, and they have a fight at the end. It's nice. not really about the fight. It's about, you know, the people, that have, people that used to be athletes that miss it. People that aren't very, you know, stand up for themselves type people. Like people that are overweight, come in and lose a bunch of weight. And there's this, this big, like, biggest loser type feel at the end of it. You know, and a lot of emotion goes into it. There's got, you know, I want to quit, dot, 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 dot. If it's a good season, the team helps keep everything together, and so do the coaches. Um, we've had the COVID thing happen right in the middle of the season that I was helping coach for another guy. There's another guy here that's got, you know, 45 fights in Aussie MMA. And uh, I teach wrestling at his school once a week, John Levin, um, about 40 minutes up the road from me. So he's brought me in, like, early morning workouts, right? The whole thing is, like, you get up at 5 a.m. five days a week. Uh. And just show your commitment and show up. And you're, you're tougher than most, right? So they've had COVID hit and they've lost some numbers. And now there's like not good matches in the room because they usually fight someone in the same season in the room. So I got to bring some of my athletes um, that haven't had fights yet that eventually want to um, and bring them over. And I'm like, man, just let me referee because I train them both. Yeah. I train these guys a couple days a week, three days a week. I train these other guys three days a week. And now I got to. I got to watch him fight. 
<laughs> so I'm like, let me referee and at least like keep it fair and keep it clean. I go, I don't want to corner either side and I can't just sit back and watch because I'll yeah, bite down to the nubs, you know what I mean? Watching those. That's cool. And that's on TV in Australia, like mainstream channel, big TV channel stuff? Cause... No. So they, they run like a proper show usually around it, which generates, you know, five, six, seven hundred people in a venue, but we can't even do that. So this one's actually going to be, you know, we're just going to do like a sparring day in the gym, but we're going to do still with the same equipment, you know, the six ounce MMA gloves, the shin pads, um, and just, just let them play, you know, and obviously not call it like it's a title fight. Like, Hey, the guy has to be really down and out and, and slumped before we call it. Right. So, yeah. But yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to have that same experience of like, Oh, I got to watch two people I really like, you know, and I want both of them to be happy, but mm. yeah. Yeah, but so how do you how do you like matchmaking? Because you know I I used to matchmake and stuff like that. And it's got you know to me I always chop it up to and you're you're a people person. It's like you got it. You just got to have an active Rolodex and then be creative. Yeah, know? yeah. So, so, talk so, a little bit about uh, adjusting to the Australian scene and getting to know the guys there. You know. Well, I traveled a lot and coached a lot, which helps. You know, I've I've done some seminars and stuff like that, and. um that's, that's a big help. So I, I know someone in every city, but you know how it goes when you can only sell seven, 800 tickets, you got to have locals and, you know, sometimes bring people in. So uh, the interstate spots are a bit limited, um, but it's, I've had a good time with it. You know, it's really nice to see guys with a good platform. And again, XFC has been running forever, like 2003. That's wild. Um, so they, they really have been the show that a lot of the good guys have run through we had another show, CFC, where I fought Hector Lombard and I fought uh, like Dylan Andrews, right? And there were a couple other guys that had fought. Robert Whitaker fought on that show a couple times. And that's where they had like the big fights, you know, mm-hmm. on that show. Um, and they had the money to do it. They had a big venue um, and, and good ticket sales. A lot of tables were sold. They'd sell like 30 tables, Jeez. You know, which is where you, where you pay for your food and your alcohol plus the ringside experience. So it's, it's a good mm-hmm. wicket. Um, but when that kind of fell under, it went back to XFC, kind of, kind of being the big show. And now a couple other shows are stepping up. We have a show on Fight Pass here in Australia, which is good for the athletes. Um, but, yeah, my only difficulty is, like, when guys, they, they put their finger in and then they pull it out. They dip their toes in and then they pull it out. And it's like, you said you wanted to fight. It's 10 weeks away. I've offered you three guys. Like, <laughs> you know, and, and it, the, it has to go through the coach then to the athlete, athlete back to the coach, back to me. And it's like, Thanks forever, I get into this long conversation sometimes where just a yes or no is all I want, man. But, you know, you, like you said, you got to massage people and you got to let them come to their own decisions and, and whatnot. But I just need firm answers. And sometimes there's a lot of like gray area kind of conversations. And I'm like, man, I'm trying to plan a show. Yeah. And, and you're trying like, to totally you, go with your yes or your no. I can't do with like maybes suck. Yeah, and you you worry, you know, pretty much about the sport, kind of like the way I did too. So what you do, so you 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 got to do it, and if they, it is a yes, then you enter into a whole new ball game where they kind of got to feel like it's fair, and you're not bringing them in to get beat, and that's it. The whole, yeah, the whole it everything, be, right? Like, so you can't be a dick yeah. getting to there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not I'm not going to ruin my reputation just to put on a fight because I need one more fight. Like, no, really one more fight. It's not worth it. You, you but just I'm not doing honest. that. There's, yeah, no. there's other people that have done it and that are doing it, and yeah. I don't like it. And other people tell me they don't like it. 
But then well, there's also that part of, but they still go and fight on those shows. <laughs> you, you know, Brian, you, you got to like look at Brad Kohler and Jamie Levine are terrible, but they fill fight cards every yeah, goddamn yeah. month, you know? like. So yeah, you know, uh, the thing is, like, you can't ask somebody to do something that you yourself wouldn't do. And, and you know, Brian, I mean, you drove to, you know, uh, God, God knows where in Minnesota for 500 bucks. So, like, yeah. you've, you know, you've really done things that most people wouldn't do. And for it to, you know, break that threshold, it's like, it's got to be bonkers. You know, like, you well, can't. Well, it's different, too. Like, I don't want to say the guys over here are entitled. But, like, Australia is a bit of a wealthier country. Like, people make good money over here. And they, it's hard almost to motivate them to do it just for the love of sport. So, like, coming from wrestling, or God, even if I play basketball, you're just there to be on the team and to be on the court. If you don't do something right, you're not on the court. And the whole motivation was to play. You could be the best guy on the team, but if you're a jerk, your coach will sit you down if you have a good coach. Or here, you can just change gyms. <laughs> you're paying you're paying the 120 well, a month to train you just change gyms now now you you talked about that a little bit maybe just uh you said you feel like maybe the people there are entitled over i think that's just a different generation of people i think it's everywhere to be honest with you because like you're saying we were when we were doing this at the beginning everybody in the sport liked the sport they were all about the sport because there wasn't money or fame or all that stuff involved with it if you were doing it for money you weren't very good at math or, or you weren't very smart because there's one there you know what i mean so no. people yeah. love the sport it's changed i mean you know since it became mainstream like you're saying i don't think people have the same mentality as people like us used to or maybe yeah. those kids in general just don't have it maybe that's what it is you know chris well, it was like like the guys that would fight for the money would be like, yeah, I'm not fighting unless, and they would give a ridiculous price. They would just be in the gym and never fight. And it was just like, man, you just, you're kind of faking your way through here to where 100%. you two were just, all right, 200 bucks, man, screw it. I got to get something in. No. Yeah. Like you got guys now that want to get paid and they don't want to sell tickets. And it's like, but how do you think we make our money? <laughs> like, I don't have sponsors. Like over here, there was a, a, a pretty good time where, it seemed like a lot of like the biker gangs, like not Hell's Angels, but you know, different named ones. The clubs. Yeah. In front row. They wear their patched up clothing, sit front row. Where in the US it's so different. Like I didn't know bikers were like a real thing. Yeah. It was yeah, a movie like, thing for me. I didn't know. Yeah. It, I was naive, from, like, I guess. Southern Illinois. What do you mean you didn't know? It's, and it's not as prevalent. When I got to Canada, I was surprised in Canada how much from Southern Illinois ran though. Never, I never saw it. I never, I never went to a Chicago Blackhawks or Chicago Bulls game and saw five bikers with their patches on watching. Okay, the game. but okay, but you've been to like a, a crash up derby in Kankakee, and they had to have been there. I, I never Come noticed, on, bro. Being serious, I, when I came over here and I saw them wearing their patches, sitting front row watching kickboxing or MMA, I was shocked. I was like, don't okay, you guys well, dress well, normal a, and not wear that? Well, here, there's a few things that have taken place since then. What was that biker show where, uh, with, uh, come on, man, it was a, a huge TV program, uh, Sons of Anarchy. See, yeah, you yeah. have moved to Australia post Sons of Anarchy. They're <laughs> everywhere now. No, no, no. That happened while I was here. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, no, I was already like, here. So I'd, already the game. Him, I'd already finally seen him in the flesh in 2007. 
Yeah, Mike, I, I think in the States. I was, 20, I think in the I was States, 26 years old before I realized bikers were like a thing thing, like real. <laughs> and that they and that they grabbed like tons of marijuana in vans and drove them across the country. Like, I didn't know. Psychedelics, too. Yeah, probably. All of it. <laughs> I didn't realize that was like a thing. I yeah. thought like the mafia had sort of been like dismantled back when like Rudy, Rudy Giuliani did his thing and the Chicago mob had like killed themselves off. I didn't realize it wasn't just Italian guys trying yeah. to run brothels and gambling dens. That's you know, funny. like, yeah, it was, well, it was definitely, he, it was interesting over here. You said well, brothels. Brian, I, I, I got to say, Brian, uh, I'm happy for you right now, man. You're in Australia. You're living a dream because I've been there three times and it's honestly, I've been, I've been able to travel all over the place. It's one of my favorite places to go to, man. I mean, I've always uh, went down to – and when, when we were out in Sydney, I went to Bondi Beach and Manly Beach. Yep. I took those ferries. Man, this, I just loved it. Uh, it's had a bunch of fun over there. And uh, one of my favorite places to go to. I'd like to go back at some point. I don't know when, but uh, I'll definitely make it through at some point. You let me know, and I'll let me see if I can put you in a couple of gyms for a few hours and see if the trip will pay for itself. Hey, that's a great seminars. I love it. It's a good idea. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure cool. I got a question for you. How far are you from Nimbin? I am actually driving that way next week. I'm going to go and see one of my old students that runs a gym. I've got, I think I've got like five former students um, from when I first came over and, and had a bit of a team uh, in Perth. I've got like five students that have their own gyms. Wow, so nice. I'm going to go see one of my my first generation students uh, and I'm taking some of my uh, students from here. Uh, and one of them I think is going to end up being a coach himself. So that's it's cool. going to be really interesting letting him meet the version of himself. That's 12 years down the line. You know what I mean? That's and awesome. vice versa. Nimbin, like, hey, mate, that's, that kid's you 12 years ago. You know what I mean? Like get his ear, have a chat with him. For those who so, might not um, be aware, Nimbin is a, uh, uh, a location capital where, of Australia. Yeah, a little, you could you could get a little bit of marijuana there at a store. We're going to be about an That's hour and a half away from there. Sounds like <laughs> I get, Sounds like you could jog it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're driving, man. It's like an eleven-hour drive from Sydney. It's going to be a haul. That's good, but man. yeah, well, yeah. I want to get out and do something. It's, we've been locked down, man. So I can't cross state borders. So it's still barely within our state. Wow. Are they really setting up roadblocks? Are they setting up roadblocks like that? Yeah, yeah, the borders are shut. Can't cross the borders. What happens if you work on the other side? Like, what happens if your job? I think there's not too many towns like that where it's really two towns across the border, but they're, they've, they've figured out some sort of border pass where, you know, you can go across. And, but they've had some dramas, like people in palliative care, their sons and daughters haven't been able to go 30 minutes across the border to see them. Yeah. Babies being can't go see your grandkid. Uh, how how bad? How bad is the death rate over in Australia? Um, we've been really lucky. Like New Zealand and us, geographically probably was the biggest bit. We didn't really have a huge um, bite, like a first like ground zero. We actually had people get off like a cruise ship that caused a problem. Had it not been for that cruise ship, I think we'd have been fine over here. So. Um, Essentially, what you're saying is that you guys are participating in the overreaction Olympics, much like us. Um, I, I can't go there. I can't say because there are a lot of people that have recovered but are still suffer, suffering like the, the the effects. So it's not like you get it and die or you get it and you're healthy. There's a lot of people getting it and like having 
what's going to be chronic lung infections for the rest of their life. So like it's, it's rough. Wow. The strains in different areas of the world aren't even the same. Like the strain, in India, it doesn't even look like ours. So I mean, I'm being okay. a little facetious yeah. with it, but the strain yeah. here in the United States, it, it's, I, I mean, it, it has it affected people, of course, but like, I think aspirin and the flu have killed more people over, yeah. you know, over a course of a year than, than COVID. Well, that's the thing too. Like you get, and it's not me diminishing like the people that have died, but that's, that's just, yeah, yeah. I think we're, I think part of the big political bit too is like, like someone was on Tom DeBlas's Facebook the other day and was like, I don't know anybody that's had it. And it's like, well, congratulations. And I hope it stays that way. And I didn't yeah. say that, but someone else did. But there's other people going, I know five people that have died in my hometown. Yeah. My, I have a guy that manages my property. I have a property back in my hometown that I rent out. And the guy that manages knows like seven people that have died in my hometown from it. And I'm like, man, or between yeah, my hometown what's and what's happening, what's happening with us is like that, that onion is starting to unpeel and a lot of the deaths that have happened that have been ruled COVID, they're, they're kind of taking them away from that. Yeah, yeah. So I know a stat came out saying like, oh, 6% of the COVID reported deaths were COVID. Well, you dig into that and the report I read was, yes, yeah, 6%, the guy had no comorbidity. Like it was, they got COVID and they died of COVID. The other one was like, the guy had diabetes COVID came along, spiked the diabetes, caused the death. Like, yeah, long- it poor health. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it, so it, it is serious. It, yeah. There's a lot of slight, it's not, yeah, it's not, it's never the two sides. Like, again, recover or die. There's a lot of slices of that pie. And then the same with the deaths. Like, what caused it? Well, COVID was like kind of the multiplying effect, maybe, for someone that had something else going on. But they could have yeah. lived with that else going on for 20 years or yeah. 15 years, yeah. whatever. But yeah, it's been it's been shit, and watching people argue on the internet over it and all that, and tearing families and communities apart, it's been rough. It's like, man, yeah, calm down, do your part, go about your day. Like, we're not all we don't all need to have like a social commentary channel, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I see, I see Stop. fighters and promoters and matchmakers. I don't see any doctors here, so I think uh, we can <laughs> probably wrap up on this one and uh brian i'm gonna invite you back for a part two at some point because it's too, still too much i do got one closing question and then we'll see what yep. chris and mike got to close but tell me a story about a time that you went and fought and they didn't pay you because had to have everyone's you. got one everybody's got a i didn't get paid so go back into the vaults and let me know if you remember one so this links back up to that story we were chatting about not not being entitled but a different generation right people Kids now see their big out and their big payday as, hey, when I get, when I get big, this and that, I'm going to get a cut of like the pay-per-view. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like when people think of that and you say cut of the pay-per-view, they think like John Jones, right? They think Conor McGregor. Well, I got a cut of pay-per-view once for fighting <laughs> Minnesota with Brad Kohler. <laughs> and uh, he was pretty happy day. to tell me that – he was pretty happy to tell me that in – eight to 12 weeks when the pay-per-view shuts that he'll send me a check. Well, there was never a pay-per-view. So I fought for piddly percent of zero and got paid zero, but thankfully I won. Yeah. I got paid zero. And that but you, got paid, you actually got paid according to the contract though. Listen, to be I have fought. Uh, it was a verbal, it was a verbal contract. I those are, those are the best ones in court. Pay-per-view. I can knock that off my bucket list. I fought for a 
a percentage of a pay per view once. Do you think? Do you think we could get Brad Cooler on here? I appreciate no. that. I'd love to get him, man. I love that. Yeah, he's, he's, had 50, he's, a little... he's had 50 fights, but they were all after his own show when people were coming to get their paychecks. Well, there was a guy, and I know we're wrapping this up. There was a guy, Mike Riley, that actually did, had the Boston Crab as one of his finishes. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, talk about fixed fights. I mean, I'm not going to say it was, but all you got to do is watch it. <laughs> yeah, you basically had to roll over for the guy. Yeah. <laughs> you get caught Excellent. in one of those. All right, Brian, always a pleasure, brother. Man, Thank hopefully I'll see you at the Hammond Civic Center again. <laughs> Mate, <laughs> I don't think so. Listen, you get, me, you get me one going out fight, and I'll take it. Good, my man. Be good, brother. Yes, sir. Good, good seeing all your faces. Thank you, guys. Long.